0: I'm riding in a massive black pickup truck as it bounces over a logging road. We're on gated and locked private timberland in a secret location out on Washington's Olympic Peninsula. In the driver's seat, a wiry and bearded Shane Corson keeps his hands lightly on the wheel. And behind me, producer Kelsey Ray juggles a pile of recording equipment. So how many times have you been out here?
1: I've been out here a lot.
0: Do you still get excited when you come out?
1: every, Every time, yeah because almost every time I've come out here, I've just discovered something new. Something always jumps out at me. Here we are.
0: We're about to plunge through the underbrush, scouting for signs of a creature that I'm betting all of us have heard about, but aren't sure if it actually exists. I'm pretty excited about this. You know, we're going somewhere where a lot of people just haven't had access. To, so we're getting to see something that a lot of people haven't seen who probably would kill for this. So I'm getting my boots laced up. We have the bug spray. Yeah. Wanna get me? Yep. Get
2: hands up. All
0: right, I think we're uh, we're good. Let's start moving. We're surrounded by huge, leafy huckleberry bushes and rhododendron in full bloom. Pine trees tower above us. It's gorgeous, but there's no time to take in the scenery, as we're trying very hard to keep up with Shane. He's your textbook mountain man, wearing head-to-toe camouflage and carrying all the right outdoor gear. He's one of two people with a key to get into this area. In fact, he's one of the few people who've even seen what we're about to see. It's taken me a year to get to this place. Countless trips to the Pacific Northwest, tons of interviews, building rapport, developing trust. And right now, I'm about to see something that could change everything. Whoa, you can see where it's like, whoa, (laughs) this is what I expected. Yeah, Uh, this is what I was, uh, yeah, finally something is living up to my expectations. This is, this, this is crazy. I mean, shit, Shane. My name is Laura Krantz. I'm a journalist. I used to work for NPR. I believe in science and logic and rational thought. And I've got a story for you. It's a story of what's beyond the light of the campfire. One of chasing shadows and searching for clues. It's a tale of fascination. Maybe even obsession. A story that you might think is crazy. And, well, there's no way around this. It's about Bigfoot. That's right. I said Bigfoot. This is Wild Thing. A series about Sasquatch, science, and society. A creature that people say they've seen. What
1: was it, Dad? What was it? And I said, I think we just saw a Bigfoot.
0: Extremely fast,
2: very muscular. I could see the back end of the larger ones, and it was nothing but
0: muscle.
3: This huge, muscular, hairy-covered thing
1: walking like a human being.
0: And the story of those who are searching for it. More than all of this, it's about why we want to believe, so very badly, that something like Sasquatch is out there. I'll come back to what we saw in the forest, and we'll hear more from Shane. But first, let's talk about why I'm out in a tick-infested forest to begin with. Because until very recently, Bigfoot was just a piece of American folklore to me. A fun story to tell on a dark night around a campfire. And the people who swear that Bigfoot's real? Well, they're just crazy, right? I mean, they're on the front page of the tabloids talking about how UFOs brought Bigfoot to this planet or that they'd given birth to Bigfoot's baby. It's some pretty out-there stuff. So Bigfoot was kind of a big joke in my mind. And then, in 2006, while flipping through the Washington Post... I found something that made me reconsider. This headline, read here by my husband, caught my eye. Using his cranium, Grover Krantz's last wish was to remain with his friends, and he has. Krantz, huh? Hey, that's my last name. So I read the article, which included some fun facts like how this guy signed up to let his body decay at the Tennessee Body Farm and then made plans for his skeleton to go to the Smithsonian along with the bones of his three Irish wolfhounds. What a weirdo, I said to myself. I kept reading. And then, this.
1: Krantz was a legend in anthropology circles, and semi-famous in the wider world, too, as the eccentric professor who drove around the Pacific Northwest with a spotlight and rifle, searching for Sasquatch.
0: Wait, what? Is this for real? This dude was a professor, and he believed in Bigfoot? I mean, I know academics sometimes have strange passions, but imaginary creatures usually aren't among them. So now I'm really intrigued by this guy, and maybe a little embarrassed for him. Some Googling around brought up an old TV interview with Grover, talking about this very odd hobby.
3: Well, I'm satisfied that this Bigfoot thing exists. Uh, Trying to make the case or argue for it on the present evidence is uh, largely uh, futile but I'd like uh, as much as possible to let the word out as to what I found out and what I'm doing.
0: Whoa, this isn't some tongue-in-cheek thing. He's serious. He's really serious. On screen, he's got a bushy white beard, graying hair, and bright blue eyes hidden behind thick, nerdy glasses. He looks, and sounds, authoritative, like the tenured anthropology professor that he was. And, well... If a guy with those kinds of credentials believes in Bigfoot, maybe it's more than just a myth. I kind of wanted to know more about this Grover Krantz guy and what drew him to Bigfoot. Was he a real scientist or some half-baked crackpot? And could we be related? He was born in Salt Lake City. I've got family from there. So I asked my dad...
3: I knew he was Pop's cousin, but I don't remember if I knew anything about him at one time
0: or not. ...who asks my grandfather who says, oh yeah, Grover, he was my cousin. He used to show up at the family picnics with calipers and measure everyone's head. That makes Grover my first cousin twice removed, or maybe I'm his second cousin once removed. Whatever, that part doesn't matter. We are related, which pretty much seals the deal. I kind of have to look into this whole Bigfoot thing. But where to begin? I mean, I knew next to nothing about this topic. So I started with the most obvious question, just what is Bigfoot? And I figured Grover's definition was as good as any.
3: Bigfoot is a large, massive, hairy, bipedal, higher primate. You could describe it as a gigantic man covered with hair and being rather stupid or an oversized, upright, walking gorilla.
0: That's basically what I'd pictured. Still, I needed more details, and I started looking around. And wow, I was blown away by how much was out there. I mean, I'd seen Harry and the Hendersons. And then there was that super shaky 1967 footage of Bigfoot, striding through a forest clearing, looking back over its shoulder. Turns out, that Bigfoot has a name. It's Patty. And it is a she. Didn't know Bigfoot could be a lady? Neither did I. My friends, what I'm trying to tell you is that there is so much to learn about Bigfoot. Bigfoots. big feet. What is the plural? I mean, this subject is a real rabbit hole and a deep one. One you could easily fall down and possibly never escape from again. And it became clear that while I was blithely living a Bigfoot-free existence... Many, many people have been looking into this stuff for decades. The internet is awash with them. There are all these forums and chat rooms and pages devoted to Bigfoot where people can share what they've seen, argue over what they know, and conveniently help me find answers to my questions. Like, what do they eat?
3: They prefer pastries, fruit-filled pastries.
0: Huh. So Pop-Tarts, or maybe Hostess fruit pies, makes sense, quick sugar, easy to carry. Okay, so how many are there?
3: Probably 2,000.
0: Whoa, really? 2,000? There's honestly more than one Bigfoot? All right, where do they sleep? Here's one theory, they might sleep in nests. And that's why I'm up in the Pacific Northwest, thrashing noisily in the underbrush.
1: Right now, I'm going to take you to the primary nest site, the the, the original find, Mm -hmm. and then we can make decisions from there if we want to go anywhere else. The
0: primary nest site. We're going to see a bunch of these nests. Shane is a member of the Olympic Project, a Bigfoot research group based here in the Pacific Northwest. And right now, they are the only ones with access to these nests. I'll tell you why in a minute. These aren't little itty-bitty birds' nests high up in trees. And they aren't bear beds either. This is
1: what a bear bed will typically look like. Now, this is an old one. But what they'll do is they'll just scrape the bark. So, I mean, just scraping it right off the tree like this. Lay it out here and lay down.
0: Nope. What we're seeing are way more elaborate. Big ground nests. Some of them are huge. Eight, nine, ten feet across. A human can comfortably lay down in them and even stretch out. They're woven with sticks and branches from the nearby plants. They've been sort of interwoven with each other. I mean, it really does look like a bird's nest.
1: Mm -hmm. You would have been amazed when we first came down here. I was, it's hard to fathom the amount of work and time that these weren't just slapped together.
0: And they're like nothing he's seen before.
1: They're very reminiscent of gorilla nests. This isn't a bear bed, an elk bed, a deer bed. Um, these are nests. These are large constructed nests. And so that's what's fascinating to me because I've never in my many years of, of hiking and hunting and exploring I come across anything like this.
0: He takes off down the trail again, pointing out broken branches that wound up as nesting material.
1: All the huckleberry was snapped off, all the tips.
0: You're saying like something came around and snapped off all the huckleberry?
1: Snapped off all the huckleberry tips and stripped, stripped them clean like something had to have hands to snap this stuff. There was no teeth marks on the huckleberry. And some of this huckleberry is two and a half, three inches thick. It's hard to snap.
0: And while Shane kind of dances around it, he, along with a handful of other people, think that maybe, just maybe, Bigfoot made these structures.
1: We're not saying Sasquatch made these nests. We're saying we don't know what made these nests. It's unknown nests, unknown hair, unknown behavior. And to me, that's fascinating. So my goal is to get to the bottom of What made these nests
0: wow so you said you brought out wildlife experts to come out and look at this stuff like who has come out here that's sort of maybe outside of the mainstream bigfoot people
1: i personally was not with them but there was two bear biologists that have taken a look at this and and um i can't actually say their names but uh they've looked at this and and uh, said this is not bear behavior that they've ever seen
0: and you can't say their names because they don't want to be associated with bigfoot stuff do I want to be associated with Bigfoot stuff?
1: To my knowledge, yes, yeah. And it's, I think it's just because of our association, guilty by association. Why wouldn't science want to look at it? I mean, something made these. So you don't want to say Bigfoot made them. You didn't, we, we can't say Bigfoot made them. Uh, but something made these nests and they're, they're weird. They're just freaking strange.
0: Why wouldn't you want to take a look at them? You know who would have loved to see them? Grover Krantz. And I know for a fact that he would have had no trouble getting access to this site. Because Grover wasn't just some random professor with a penchant for Sasquatch. He was, and is, kind of a big deal. Like I said earlier, I didn't know the man, or anything about him. But in a year of researching this project, and interviewing people who did, I have learned a hell of a lot. Which is why I'm spending a good part of the rest of this episode talking about Grover. Grover. In future episodes, I'm going to explore Bigfoot's science and evidence and lore. But I wouldn't be doing any of this if it hadn't been for Cousin Grover. For better or for worse, he's the reason we're here.
2: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg.
0: Despite the fact that Grover died back in 2002, he's still a legend in the Bigfoot community. His work remains the foundation for the more serious side of Sasquatch research. But even Grover publicly admitted that he started out as a skeptic.
3: Did I think they were real? No, no way. I was here at Washington State University for about two years uh, before I um, finally got hold of some uh, direct information A pair of footprints. One of them was obviously crippled.
0: That set of footprints, found in 1969 outside an old mining town in northeast Washington, changed his mind. In Grover's professional opinion, they were too realistic to ignore.
3: The design of foot that's implied by the crippling was exactly what you would expect for uh, a creature about eight feet tall and enormously heavy. If somebody faked that and put all these subtle hints of the anatomy design in that, he had to be a real genius, expert at anatomy, and um, very inventive and original thinking.
0: And so, with that, Grover threw himself into Bigfoot. He spent the remainder of his life looking. Because he knew that while he considered Bigfoot to be a flesh and blood creature, he would need to provide concrete proof before the rest of the world would accept it as fact. His work in this topic, along with his academic credentials, made him the preeminent expert on Sasquatch. Now, Bigfoot scholarship is, surprise, a very small field. So maybe it's not that hard to be preeminent. But it was something he pursued publicly, at risk to both his personal and his professional life. Bigfoot wasn't particularly popular with the anthropology faculty at Washington State University. That's where Grover had tenure. Even the chair of anthropology, who was a friend, said Grover was seen as an embarrassment to the department. His obsession seriously delayed his academic career and almost cost him a promotion. He's still the butt of jokes in anthropology circles. But Grover's students loved him.
1: He just cared about, cared about his students. Brilliant and lovely and a wonderful man and a loving guy. Just cared about, cared about people who were serious about what he was studying.
0: They described his courses to me as exhaustive, thorough, meticulous, organized. Former students said they learned a tremendous amount. He mostly played it straight in the classroom and only gave one scientific lecture on Bigfoot every year as part of his Anthropology 101 course. That was enough to hook students like Chris Spencer. He's shaped my opinion of Sasquatch. Chris went to Washington State in the 1990s. We met at a Bigfoot campout in Oregon. Yeah, a Bigfoot campout. More on that later. But when he realized I was related to Grover, he immediately started talking about how Grover's class was one of his favorites. That one Bigfoot lecture turned Chris from just another anthropology student into a believer. I'm one of those people, I'm totally on the scientific side of it. It's flesh and blood. I don't I don't believe Sasquatch has supernatural powers or anything like that. And I tend to, my whole opinion of Sasquatch is kind of based upon Grover's opinion of it. He was one of many people who cited Grover as their entry point to Bigfoot. Their guide for studying the beast. Why? Well... Grover took a very scientific approach to the evidence, and he established how scientists should study Sasquatch if they take it seriously. He analyzed footprints for anatomical accuracy, dismissing many as fakes. He constructed biomechanical models and considered the creature's evolution using the latest anthropological findings. He took something that seemed like total nonsense, and applied the same rules that he would apply to any other scientific inquiry. His approach to the Bigfoot question was, as one former grad student put it,
1: Typical Cramps. I mean, everything he did was thorough and logical.
0: Totally runs in the family. And speaking of family, this was a man completely devoted to his work and his Irish wolfhounds. And the dogs are important. I'll talk about them in a future episode. But somehow he found the time to get married, Four times, to be exact. I don't know much about his first three wives, but you could say it was Bigfoot who introduced Grover to his fourth wife, Diane Horton. Back in the 1980s, she was living in Denver, having finished her master's in biology. She was already curious about Bigfoot when she read about Grover's work. I saw Grover's name in a newspaper. And so
2: I wrote to him, because it said he was a professor. And I'd never heard of anybody who was in academia, that said anything positive
0: about Sasquatch. They exchanged letters and then finally met in person. When they married, Diane helped Grover with his Bigfoot research, which involved overseas travel to the Soviet Union and China to discuss Bigfoot's distant cousins. And there were road trips around the Pacific Northwest conducting interviews with eyewitnesses.
2: We went to interview this guy who had seen Bigfoot. And he was this backwoodsman-type farm boy, just humongous guy, probably 250 pounds, all muscle. And he, he said that he was out there shoot, uh, hunting deer, and he saw
0: one. A Bigfoot. He said he'd never seen anything so big. And he says, I shit my pants.
2: <laughs> and he
0: blushed, and it was like, Wow. If that guy did that... She thinks that she and Grover collected about 20 of these eyewitness accounts. But Grover also got all these testimonials in the mail. Confessionals, they called them. Because the person would write, I'm
2: 87 years old. I have to tell you what happened when I was 10.
0: I've never told anybody before, but I have to get this off my chest. People who'd kept their experiences secret for decades. Maybe they were scared. Maybe they didn't want to be laughed at, but they all saw something that stuck with them. They believed. And he had hundreds of those letters. With a brief little story, I was out by the barn and this Bigfoot thing walked by. Sadly, Grover didn't keep them. He just tossed them away. Because what he wanted was evidence and proof. And eyewitness accounts weren't enough. He was a scientist to the core. But you might not have known that from how he dressed. He always wore these safari jackets and the little, like, fisherman hat.
2: So that gave him the idea that he was a, a hunter or something rather than a professor. He didn't wear suits.
0: A hunter who preferred sleeping in his own bed.
2: But he didn't like camping in, in a tent. He didn't like a tent. He had his van all fixed up with a bed and a I wanted him to go, you know, let's take a tent. We can go farther, but um, no, he didn't.
0: I'm going to go out on a limb here and say it's probably going to be a little harder to find Bigfoot if you're not willing to spend a couple nights deep in the woods. I've talked to a lot of people about their Bigfoot sightings. You'll hear their stories in the upcoming episodes, but most of them were out in the wilderness somewhere, well off the beaten path. Bigfoot research groups like the Olympic Project which Shane is a member of, are largely made up of lifelong outdoorsmen and women. The serious Bigfoot guys seem to prefer living in the forest to sleeping in their own beds. They spend countless hours in the woods looking for evidence and signs. And those nests? Well, they weren't found by some Sunday hiker who stayed on trail. It feels
2: like it'll be a lot harder to get out going the
1: other way. (laughs) It always is, especially, you know what, if you're down here and it's pouring rain, which we've done a number of times, it's slick. You're getting smacked in the face with branches. You're getting gouged. You got bugs. It's not, not a place for, uh, this isn't somewhere you come to go hiking. And, and, you know, if you really stop and just look around, you, you start to get a feel of how kind of isolated this area is.
0: How, how were these found?
1: Uh, this gentleman's a, worked for a timber company, and he was out surveying a timber cut. And he came across these nests, and it floored him. He had never seen anything like this in his, what, 25, 30 years of, of hiking
0: we're half-walking, half-sliding down a wooded hillside, holding onto tree trunks to keep from falling. It's steep. We are off the beaten path here.
1: Imagine this timber guy coming out here. You know, here he's never come across anything like that, but they come across that and they were fresh. These nests were, the huckleberry was still green, so something had been there, I think they guesstimated within a month, and he thought it was unique.
0: The timber guy called up the Olympic project. And brought them out here along with some agents from the department of natural resources
1: and they found i think five more and the timber company they basically said you know what we'll give you guys uh, you know four or so years to work on this area uh, and investigate eventually we do need to log it and uh, we were the only ones with the key to the gate and pretty much the only ones that come out here
0: so that friends is why shane's got a key and i know shane from a Bigfoot expedition that you'll hear about in another episode. And knowing Shane means that producer Kelsey and I get to come out here, the only journalists who've been granted access to the site and who get updates on what these guys are finding. It's partially because we promised not to take photos, but I'm pretty sure the last name Krantz helped too. After all, I'm Grover's kin. To be honest... Grover made me want to believe, and sharing a last name with him helped me get access to his world. It opened doors. I actually had one man bow down in front of me, saying that he studied in the, quote, Crancian School of Susquology. Other people wanted to know if I was carrying on the family legacy and adding to the body of Bigfoot research. I'm not. People have been searching for Bigfoot for decades, and I'm under no illusion that I'm going to find the big guy. I'm not even certain Bigfoot exists. But now, because of Grover, you could call me Bigfoot curious. And I've got so many questions like, is it real? Why is it so elusive? And what do we do if we catch one? If they're not real, why does the myth persist? In other words, why do we want to believe? These are questions I can't ask Grover. So I'm gonna interview scientists who have expertise in evolution.
1: So some people believe Bigfoot is a long-surviving remnant of a species that was called Gigantopithecus from Asia.
0: And talk to CEOs who use Sasquatch to sell their goods.
1: Somebody owns a national trademark for coffee for using the term Bigfoot. So I switched it to the Sasquatch Coffee Company. Um, Sasquatch Coffee. Have you tried it yeti?
0: And join Bigfoot seekers on an expedition in the wilderness.
2: Okay, I don't want to freak anybody out, but it literally looks like something standing behind a tree with a shoulder and a head.
0: I'll parse through the evidence, like the findings from those nests, talk to lots and lots and lots of eyewitnesses, and explore the psychology of belief. Since Grover is my entry point into all of this, I'm keeping his scientific approach at the heart of it. But I also want to tell the stories of the people who love and believe in Bigfoot looking at why people get so consumed by the search for this unknown creature, and why even the non-believers are fascinated. What does all this say about Bigfoot? And what does it say about us? In the end, we may not actually find anything, but I promise the journey will be pretty damn fun. Ready? Love this show? Want to show that love? Leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. This really helps us get the word out about Wild Thing. Also, make sure you check out our website, wildthingpodcast.com. That's Wild Thing Podcast, all one word. If you see Sasquatch in the wild, make sure to snap a photo, blurry or otherwise, and share it using the hashtag #WildThingPod. This podcast is a production of Foxtopus Inc. Wild Things Created, Reported, and Produced by me, Laura Krantz, with help from Kelsey Ray. Alisa Barba is our editor. Scott Carney is our executive producer. Our music is composed by Ramteen Arablui and mixed by Sanaz Meshkinpur.